Welcome to the new On Democracy with FP Wellman podcast in a studio in beautiful Creevecore, Missouri. I'm telling you, it's great to be here. I got to tell you, I'm so excited about the new season, the new format, the new guest. It's going to be an exciting season. Now, if you're not familiar with On Democracy, we're a podcast obviously that focuses on the state of our democracy. I like to bring you the topics and the guests that are in that fight every day. If you follow me before and you're following me now, you're going to see top advocates, top politicians, top journalists, the people who are in the fight. And, and there'll be people you know, but what I'm really excited about is I like to bring people you don't know. The folks who are down in the trenches doing important work, maybe uh, like last season, we had Crystal Quaid, the minority leader for the state of Missouri, the Democratic Party, fighting against the supermajority of, of, uh, of folks in the Republican Party here. Or you might have Ryan Boosie, who was with us, who was a longtime uh, in- industry executive in the gun, gun industry. Those are the unique voices we're going to bring. So I'm just thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be in the studio with here at <laughs> Half Coast Studios, which you'll hear a lot more about because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> but we're at Half Coast Studios, and I'm just really excited about the new On Democracy. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll catch us on all the places you catch your podcast, Apple, Spotify, all the cool places. But most importantly, now you'll be seeing us on YouTube every Thursday, uh, hopefully, <laughs> maybe more often, uh, usually from here, maybe while I'm on the road. We'll see. With that, let's get into the show. So, man, it's just me this week as we're just kicking off the episode. Uh, I will tell you, we've got some great guests coming up. I've already got them lined up. Uh, next week, I'm going to talk to my friend Chris Goldsmith, who you may see on Twitter. Chris is in there in the fight, uh, leading a new group, uh, Veterans Fighting Fascism, which I'm part of. Uh, you'll hear from him about their fight against Patriot Front. My friend Steve Schmidt has promised to join us, and everybody knows Steve Schmidt. Uh, of course, Alex Vinman, a very good old friend of mine. You may have heard his name somewhere and, and a few other folks. Uh, so we're going to have a really exciting month of, of, of shows. You know, for this first one, uh, Matt, my producer, he'll more about, and I want to just kind of get me in the studio and talk to you about some of the big issues we're dealing with. Man, I got to tell you, though, <laughs> you know, what a day on the way here. I had to rewrite the script. Now, if I had a script, I'd rewrite it, but I don't. But if I did have a script, we'd rewrite it. And, and, and the big one is, just as we arrived driving over here from lunch, my friend Jim Laporta, who is a reporter for the AP uh, and a terrific military veteran reporter, uh, the AP just put out a story today that uh, a candidate in Ohio named J.R. Majewski. Now, J.R., you may have seen around. He was just at the, uh, the uh, event in Ohio with President, or former President Trump and the rest of those guys. J.R. really likes to tout the fact he's an Air Force veteran, he's a combat veteran veteran. He talks about it, that he went to Afghanistan and had some tough times there, sort of, de, you know, defers on what about his combat experience. Well, as it turns out, the Associated Press does what a lot of people do. They asked for his DD-214 from the military and discovered it. As it turns out, Jared Majewski is not an Afghanistan veteran. He did not serve in Afghanistan. And there's nothing wrong. He, he served in Qatar. Uh, Qatar is a great place. You know, uh, he, uh, he was a, plane, a passenger loader in Qatar for six months. Nothing wrong with that. Technically, he's a combat veteran. I'm not going to argue that either. Qatar is considered the combat zone of the Middle East. The problem is that JR has been saying he served in Afghanistan. He's been saying over and over, he tells war stories about serving Afghanistan. How he went 40 days without a shower and how hard it was. I'm not defaulting. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, besmirching his service, but I am besmirching his lies. You can't say you were a combat veteran in Afghanistan and he never served. It's been a major part of his campaign. Matter of fact, it's the centerpiece of his campaign. He likes to run around with the flag thrown over his shoulder claiming his combat veteran status. You know, I served four combat tours. I did I did Operation Desert Storm. I did OIF-1 with the 101st Airborne. I was a Blackhawk 
a, a pilot then and did civil affairs. Went back two more tours as a public affairs officer. Look, I wasn't a door kicker. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't blowing up things. Uh, I tell you this, though, I did serve, and I served in the combat zone. And it bothers a lot of us veterans who have served when someone claims this status. I've been attacked so many times I can't even count. Uh, even the tweet where I put out talking about J.R. Majewski's situation, I had somebody come at me about my combat service. That's fine. Come at me. Pull my DD-214. But this is really egregious. So uh, J.R. Majewski has actually gone silent for two days on Twitter, has an answer base, which is interesting. So we'll see. Let's keep an eye on that. I mean, we can't hold people to different standards. You know, Republican or Democrat, if you lie about your service, you got no business serving in government. Uh, unfortunately, his district is hard red. Uh, it was just part of the big redistricting in Ohio gives him an advantage. So he's up against an incumbent. I hope you give her support. But uh, that was as we came in. So, again, you know, we can't have double standards. Now, what else is going on in the world? Well, it's been a while since we did an episode. Uh, probably the biggest thing you keep hearing about is classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Now, I've been pretty vocal about this. If you follow me on Twitter, by the way, you need to follow me on Twitter, at FP Wellman. <laughs> and... If you follow me a lot, I've been talking about this issue a lot. And look, I had a top secret SCI clearance uh, for about 18 years of my career. Most of my military career, I had clearance. So let me tell you a little bit about how that works. I mean, we've, we've, you've seen the pictures of the documents on the floor from the FBI. You, you, you've seen the legal proceedings going on. You've seen the argument that President Trump, former President Trump, declassified the documents, which that's a whole nother thing. But let me just, I want to give you guys a little perspective on what it's like to serve in the military with the tactical clearance, what it means, what, what do we do with top secret documents? So let me tell you what happened. A perfect example is after, uh, I, I could talk about it because the organization doesn't exist anymore, but so right after 9-11, I got mobilized and there was, I was a reservist, I don't know if you know my story. So I, I had gotten out of the army in 13 years. I was running for mayor, Peachtree City, Georgia, a beautiful little town south of Atlanta. But I was also a reserve officer and my unit was the headquarters called Forces Command. And uh, sure enough, on 9-11, I got that call. Because I had been running for mayor all summer, I actually hadn't like done my two weeks of annual training. You know, reservists do two weeks. So the first people they called on 9-11 were those reservists who hadn't done their two weeks, right? It's the easiest people you can call in. They owe you two weeks already. You don't have to worry about big fancy orders. You can just bring them in. So I was called on the night of 9-11. I came in two days later, left my civilian job. Frankly, I never went back. So when I got there, first night I worked in the Crisis Action Center, Second night, I was running it. Third night, they put me in plans, right? So plans, and this is a building in Atlanta that no longer exists. I think I can talk about it a little bit. The plans vault was literally a vault. When I came to work, I had to take my ID. I had to slide in through the main doors of Forces Command, which is a secure building, which is on a secure base. Secure base, secure building. Go down to the basement of the building, the headquarters there, which has since been leveled, I believe, down the basement was a true vault with a door, with a digital lock. I had to, digit, I had to, I had to, um, I had to slide my ID card to get in the digital lock vault. Within that vault was top secret operations and secret operations for all the information on units across the United States. Each top secret document was inside of its own top secret um, filing cabinet, which is a filing cabinet with its own digital lock or, or, or a term lock. So literally... A SCIF, as they call it, a, 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 you know, a special compartment information facility, a SCIF, is that secure. That's where classified documents go. What Mar-a-Lago is, is none of those things. And what Mar-a-Lago did, what he did with these documents, classified or declassified, was he literally had them in his desk. He literally had them in a broom closet off of a ballroom with a padlock. Don't let anyone fool you. Those documents were unsecure. They were dangerously unsecure. 
And the kind of stuff that the president gets is so high classification, even a SCI clearance doesn't see it. There's compartmentalization that you wouldn't believe. So just because you have a clearance doesn't mean you can see everything. So for those of us who serve, I think you'll see a lot if you follow military folks on Twitter or social media, you know any, you can really see their heads exploding because the reasons we know that if we had left work, if I had left my job at Forces Command with a top secret document in my backpack, I'd be in jail now. And let's not forget um, that uh, the young lady uh, who got busted, oh my gosh, you know her name, <laughs> but she was busted for a five-page document that, and she was in, she ended up going to jail for four years for a five-page document. Um, and so we really have to think about just how dangerous it is to have hundreds of these pages of documents unsecured in a broom closet at a beach club, a beach club that has had numerous penetrations, has had numerous foreign agents wandering around when all it takes to get into it is the cost of admission. So I think that's why you see so much angst on uh, the military side of those who have served and, and why we're so angry. Look, the legal thing is going to play itself out. The idea that the president of the United States can simply wave his Burger King stained fingers and declassified document is just ridiculous. And so if they're telling you that, don't believe it for one second. There is a process. And the reason there's a process, even for the president of the United States, is if he's declassified something, everyone needs to know it's declassified. The agency that wrote that document, be it one of our seven intelligence agencies at the national level, they need to know that something they produce has been declassified so they can protect the methods and operations that went into that. Perhaps it's a source in a foreign country. Perhaps it's a satellite. We don't know. But in the end, all that has to be protected. So the idea the president can simply wave his fingers and declassify a document, not tell anyone, is ridiculous. And the thing is, you're seeing that now. If you saw the stuff yesterday with Judge Cannon uh, sending it to a special master, the special master, Mr. Uh, Judge Deary, he's calling them out. He's like, look, you have to prove these were declassified. You have to show something, an affidavit, anything. Because uh, Trump's been claiming that he declassified and that like Cash Patel knew. Well, then if Cash Patel knew he declassified it, then I'm sure Cash Patel would be more than happy to swear an affidavit before a judge saying that, yes, President Trump showed me that he was declassifying these documents. But oddly, he hasn't. And the reason he hasn't, because even Cash Patel knows, he can go to jail for that shit. And so I think as this plays out, this whole idea that he magically declassified these documents is going to show that it's not true. Unless someone has got the well, balls, <laughs> to go forward and swear an oath you know, under penalty of perjury that they actually saw him declassified. So it's an interesting case to follow. Uh, I just want you guys to understand why so many of us who served and have clearances are so warped out about it. But uh, keep an eye on that one. The other thing I've been spending a lot of my time being angry about is uh, my friend Ron DeSantis, oh, also a veteran as it turns out. So Governor DeSantis of Florida, as you guys I'm sure are following, had his little stunt where he shipped asylees. I don't want to even say immigrants. I don't want to call them illegal immigrants or illegal aliens or any of that stuff. These were folks who came to the border from Venezuela, turned themselves into the border patrol, claimed asylum, have granted the process, been brought into the system for granting asylum in the United States. By the way, a system I'm very familiar with because I brought my interpreter's widow and his two children over from Iraq when he was murdered in 2004, and we brought them to the United States in 2005 as asylees. So it's a system. There's a process. And when they're granted the process, when they're granted, not necessarily granted asylum yet, but when they're brought into the system, they are here legally. So let's start. Let's just throw that out right now at the idea these 50 people were illegals. They were not. They were here legally. That's part one. Part two, DeSantis got permission from his own legislature, 
a Republican rubber stamp legislature. But if you very if you look very carefully at the law they gave him, they gave him twelve million dollars to remove illegal immigrants from Florida, from Florida, twelve million dollars. Instead, he went to Texas, where he said this mysterious woman Perla, who we still don't know who that is, Christina Pusha. But we don't know who Perla is, but supposedly this lady Perla recruited some folks and they went in and they recruited these 50 Venezuelans, brought them to a hotel. Someone gave them addresses at homeless shelters around the country illegally saying that that's where they should report in. They were all in English. They're Spanish speakers. That's an issue. Put them on an airplane, touched down briefly in Florida, and then flew to freaking Martha's Vineyard with a videographer on board and non-informed Massachusetts uh, uh, authorities and Fox News getting the quit. And if you see the video, someone, that videographer got off for the pastor so he could film it and give it to Fox News. Christina Pushaw, who is his campaign spokesman, not his state spokesman, Christina Pushaw works for the campaign now, was one of the first people to tweet out about it and claim credit for this operation. She doesn't work for the state. She works for the campaign. So here's the can of worms. When we start opening it up and unpacking it, who paid for what? We know there was a contract for, I think, uh, $650,000 for the planes. Who paid for Perla? Who paid for the hotel? Who paid for the videographer? Was that a state employee? Was that a campaign contractor? Who was the one that pitched to Fox News? Was it campaign staff? You can see where this goes very quickly and gets out of control. Now, DeSantis is spinning. He's trying to say, ah, well, you know, we know from intelligence that who the people are likely to come to Florida. So we're just preventing that. Look, these people weren't coming to Florida. There is a large Venezuelan community, but they did come to Florida. They were coming to Florida legally, not illegally. And the law that his own rubber stamp legislature passed for him was looking for illegals. So look, he's lying. Let's not, let's not split hairs here. The man's lying. And there's a lot of questions. And it's good to see Daniel Ufelder, uh, I believe that's his name, you know, the lawyer there is doing a lot of the hard work. There's a lot of good folks in the ground. Ron Filikowski is a friend of mine. I, I really like Ron. They're holding him accountable. But you've really got to look hard at the layers of this. Don't believe the gaslighting, okay? Don't believe the spin. What's happened is probably illegal in various ways. Look, I don't know if it was kidnapping like some people are claiming. That's not, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. But I do know that there's, there's probably violations of FEC regulations. There's a violation of his own law that his, his own legislature passed. I mean, come on, come on. They're from Texas. Touching down in Florida doesn't make them from Florida. And I, I can't even believe, as, as much as the Republican Party has fell, the Republican Party has fell so very deeply in the thrall of, let's call it fascism, that even Republican legislators who passed this bill, they must have take pause, that they gave the governor a lot of leeway and he blew right through it. So we'll see. We'll see if the Florida legislature actually does some oversight. I'm hopeful that the Florida media will hold him accountable. Uh, DeSantis is pretty slick, but you know what? He's no Donald Trump. He ain't that slick. And he probably broke some laws. And as you saw, he uh, there's a class action lawsuit being filed. I mean, just take a second to think about it. They flew him to Martha's Vineyard. Look, I lived in Boston when I went to grad school for about a year. My dad's from Boston originally. Do you know how many lawyers are in Martha's Vineyard? I mean... <laughs> Like, I mean, retired lawyers with tons of money and just time, time on their hands to do lawsuits against people who F with them. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, if you're going to pick anywhere in the world to take 
illegal people or, or something like this, Martha's Vineyard, not really well thought out. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the lawyers of Martha's Vineyard are able to do uh, and prove. But uh, this ain't over, folks. Uh, he's going to try and gaslight us. But let's be honest. This is a campaign stunt by DeSantis to get those cool MAGA points and, and, and get some credit. Get that five minutes on Fox News because that's all they really want. Just like Greg Abbott shutting down the border, get a total of four minutes on Fox News. It costs $40 million for the country. So, look, let's not buy the gaslighting. So that's Ron DeSantis is crazy. Now, this morning, I think the last thing I'll talk about because it's a short episode today, right? All right, Matt, Matt's looking at me. Yeah, shut up, Fred. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he won't say it, but he's going to say it. <laughs> I think the last thing we're just talking a little bit is, you know, the really, I think it's exciting news myself, but the Letitia James uh, lawsuit against the Trump organization and Donald Trump and his, his three oldest children, which <laughs> somebody tweeted, which I thought was hilarious. Like, you know, this is the one time that uh, Tiffany Trump is glad she wasn't included in anything <laughs> for once. The only, the only Trump child not to be indicted. But... Letitia James, the New York AG, has sued the Trump Organization, his foundations and others, as well as a number of folks associated with the Trump Organization, including Donald and his three oldest children, for, if you've been following along, that the bottom line is they've been inflating the value of their properties so they could get loans from banks, they could get credit and live their ridiculous lifestyles. One thing she pointed out today in her news conference, and I think in the lawsuit itself, is that, for example, Mar-a-Lago, which we were just talking about because it's full of fun secret documents, Mar-a-Lago is really only making about $25 million a year. Not bad. I mean, let's see, $25 million, no joke, right? Uh, it's a lot. So, But they're making $25 million a year. That means if you understand business analysis, generally the way it works is the profit margin for a business for a year, you multiply it by three, and that's the value of a property. It's not complicated. I mean, there's, there's formulas, and that's why I'm not in business anymore. But bottom line is a place that makes $25 million a year is worth about $75 million on paper. That's it, Right. He had estimated as much as I think 736 million. Okay. That's a lot. That's a big difference. That's essentially 10 times what it's actually worth. Okay. And he got loans from places like Deutsche Bank, which is a whole layer of issues considering who works at Deutsche Bank. But we do know that she said today that Deutsche Bank is actually cooperating. So his bank is working with the, uh, the New York AG. So this is a lot of trouble. And, and, and what you'll see is a $250 million lawsuit. Not a lot of money, but there is the potential. He will never be able to do business in New York ever again. And the Trump organization, I mean, that's that's his framework. I mean, think about it. The man lives in one of his business properties. Mar-a-Lago is a business property. That's where he lives, okay? And he could very well lose his home, which is ironic in a host of ways because we kicked him out of ours uh, not too long, two years ago. So it really is a significant thing. Now, look, I'm as cynical as everybody else, right? We We've heard this. So many times. I'm not delusional. Uh, I, I've been dealing with Donald Trump. I was a never Trumper before it was a, a thing, uh, before they called us that. Um, I've been I've been I've been through this. Of course, as you know, I'm a Lincoln Project veteran. Uh, I've dealt with this guy for a long time and, and, and his opposition to him. But it is encouraging fine to see true lawsuits, true legal uh, jeopardy, true legal ramifications. You can see it's making him crazy. He's been going nuts on Truth Social, which is also failing. Uh, you know, I guess this last week, Truth Social closed down their headquarters. So they don't even have an office anymore. So there's a lot of danger for Donald Trump right now. Now, what does that mean for the big picture? And and frankly, what does it mean for our democracy? After all, this is called on democracy. What it means for our democracy is, is uh, I'll tell you a story. 
So, you know, I worked with the Lingo Project for about two years almost. And, and my colleague, Steve Schmidt, who will be joining us, I'm looking forward to Steve joining the show, um, and, and my old boss, Reed Galen, uh, we used to talk quite a bit about the situation. And both of them have described separately in interviews that the Republican Party in many ways is shrinking. It's becoming very much a white Christian evangelical party. It's actually a conversation. There was a great article today I recommend talking about the movement towards how there's actually a poll that came out how Republicans believe that America should become a Christian nation. Like yeah, some 63% of Republicans polled said that they, a Christianity should be our national religion, which is obviously illegal in the constitution. But the point that my, my colleagues were saying is like, it's like a shrinking star. Think of it that way. The Republican party is shrinking. They're becoming a minority party. They already are. If you look at the numbers in the MAGA movement, it's very much a minority. But like a star, as it shrinks, like a supernova, it becomes hotter <laughs> and more explosive. And what happens when a star shrinks to a certain point, it explodes, right? And I think that is the danger we're facing. If you saw last week's rally in Ohio where J.R. Majewski, who was at the top of the hour, where my opponent in Georgia, my, my, my candidate's opponent in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, attended, uh, you, you saw the looked a whole lot like a Nazi salute, uh, which apparently has something to do with QAnon, some very dangerous things, some very clearly movement toward fascism. We see a lot of threats of violence. I, I, you should look at my DMs sometime, the number of threats I get on a regular basis. It's, it's layers. I, by the way, if you're sending me, I screenshot them and send them to the police, but go ahead, send them all you want. <laughs> um, it's very dangerous. So we are not out of danger. Um, we are not, Trump going away doesn't change anything. It, I wish it did, but we thought that would happen when he left the White House. It didn't. Um, this movement, this very dangerous anti-democratic movement is growing uh, hotter. Now, it may not be growing larger, uh, but it is growing more dangerous. And so one of the things you're going to talk about a lot in this podcast and this show as we go forward in these longer episodes, we have our guest. We'll be talking a lot about that next week's guest, my friend Chris Goldsmith. Uh, Chris, you should follow him on, on, on Twitter. Chris Goldsmith It's really easy to find. Chris with a K. Chris has been studying this for years. Chris, you'll learn about him next week. He started off working at the Vietnam Veterans of America as a, as a staffer, discovered these fake Facebook pages that were mimicking Vietnam veterans but feeding them propaganda and right-wing talking points and often foreign talking points. He discovered it was a Russian disinformation campaign or an Eastern European disinformation campaign. This led to reports about that. And now Chris has actually made his profession pursuing these disinformation networks and these extremists. And he has recently launched uh, a group called the Task Force Butler of, of veterans who are pursuing these militias and these right-wing groups and also a group that I'm a part of, Veterans Fighting Fascism, which I'm really excited to tell you about next week. Chris and I will talk about it. What you'll hear from Chris is these networks and the danger we face. They've done it. They've issued a big report that just came out yesterday about Patriot Front. If you look at NBC News, Ben Collins has an exclusive report on that report they issued making it clear that the Patriot Front group is a danger, that the laws as exist right now could take down and arrest the leaders of Patriot Front. They've done a lot of illegal things. So we face a dangerous time. Uh, we face a moment where we have to make choices. And it's not black and white. And it's not Republican or Democrat. It's not right, left. There's nothing conservative. I, I mean, come on. Okay. We allow hearing that DeSantis spent $950,000 yesterday, allegedly, flending empty planes as they're trying to say it was a joke, a, a, a troll. There's nothing physically conservative about spending $12 million of taxpayer money 
for stunts, okay? There's nothing conservative about any of that. It's simply, I don't know, <laughs> wrong, I guess you'd say. So when we had these conversations, don't get bogged down in Republican versus Democrat, right, left, conservative, progressive. A lot of times we're talking about Democratic versus anti-Democratic. We're talking fascist versus, well, anti-fascist. So we was the conversation we're going to have. Like I said, I mentioned Chris Goldsmith is going to be a guest. Sold that O'Brien said she's going to join us one of these days. She talks a lot about the challenge we have facing our media. Of course, Steve Schmidt, one of the most brilliant people you'll ever see talk. All the folks you're going to see a lot of. So we've got a lot of cool stuff coming. I hope you enjoyed this short episode today. Hope you'll tell your friends you need to subscribe on our YouTube channel. I really need you to do that. Otherwise, we're just wasting our time and yelling in the I need you to subscribe to our Twitter feed for the show, which is on democracy pod on Twitter at on democracy pod. Of course, I'm at FP Wellman on Twitter and well, frankly, everywhere. I got a Facebook page that you never touch. I got an Instagram page with pictures of me doing this. Uh, we would just love to have you participate in this conversation. Send me your questions on Twitter. Send me your questions on, on DM. I'm happy to answer those questions. Um, so I, I, matter of fact, I, I should answer one, right? Let's do that properly. I, uh, somebody asked me today, uh, it was a great question. She asked, before I let you go, I have to answer. I apologize. Uh, how do you deal with anger fatigue? Right. She had, you know, cause there's it's just, it just seems like every new, every day there's a new anger. And of course I live this every day um, in my work, both as a political consultant, as an advocate. Um, and I got to tell you, it's hard, right? We're all getting stressed out. I used to have a big brown beard two years ago, but <laughs> not anymore. Uh, so I could tell you it, it is challenging. I think if you follow me, you know, I walk a lot, right? I walk a minimum of three miles a day every day. And and I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm more than happy to tell you the truth. I came to this studio for my therapy session. <laughs> so, you know, you know, get therapy. Um, but I, I, that is part of my life. This, I, I've made uh, my mental health and my physical health a part of my life uh, for me to maintain this. You know, when, and uh, I should plug it. So on October 7th, uh, the Lincoln Project documentary premieres on Showtime. Uh, shot by my friend Fisher Stevens and Amir Kareem, uh, all award-winning guys. The guy that did Tiger King, it's going to be great. So <laughs> the guy that did the Tiger King is doing a documentary that I'm in. And, and you'll see he joined us in uh, Park City where the Lincoln Project, where we gathered the Lincoln Project staff for the last two months of the campaign. I was a little late to it. I actually didn't join that because I was late to the Lincoln Project. I only joined uh, in August of 2020, long after they had formed. I was one of the latest people Actually, one of the last people to join the campaign, frankly, uh, to run our veterans campaign. What you'll see in the documentary is our lives behind the scenes. You'll see me. I don't know when I'll show up, maybe episode two or three. Who knows? Um, Fisher says I don't look terrible. I'll take his word for it. Uh, so you'll see that. So October 7th, on Showtime, watch that. But you'll see that I think I think they, they actually followed me on one of my hikes. I actually went. I, I hiked every day in Park City. I did my work with the Langa Project, and, and I would take a hike up in the mountains every day in Park City, Utah, to maintain my mental health and not keep my balance and make sure I didn't lose my stuff. And I really tried to avoid alcohol because it's no good. So answer your question, how do I manage my anger fatigue? I just, I keep going. Uh, you take care of yourself. You go out, you hike, you surround yourself with good people. You have a good laugh. Uh, but we're in a long-term fight. Um, as my colleagues mentioned that before I managed to segue back to it, this is going to get harder. Our opponents, the folks who want to take down our democracy are more open about it. They're more loud. They know they're losing. And when an opponent is losing, they're more dangerous. And so we face some very challenging times ahead of us. But having said that, on a positive note, thanks for joining us. Matt, thanks for keeping me straight. Hopefully you make me look good. <laughs> we'll see. It's a challenge for anybody. We're here in the home studio with all of our stuff. Um, and uh, I just look forward to joining you again. So thanks for joining that podcast. Again, follow us at Pod on Twitter and everywhere else. 
Have a great day.